Well, good morning again, friends. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. During our time today, we will look at verses 1 to 24. Pastor Sam read in our hearing a few minutes ago, verses 15 to 24. Uh, We're going to cover as best we can this section, verses 1 to 24, here as we go through the sermon. But a prevailing theme throughout this passage of Scripture is the concept of a feast. A feast. It's a rich word. It conjures up images in my mind of past feasts I've enjoyed. Um, one that comes to mind immediately was my first month in China. And my work, my, my employers there took me to a restaurant that was in Chinese called Ikoju. And if you can speak Chinese, you know that's translated one mouth pig. <laughs> I had never seen so much pork in my life. One part of the pig after another was brought out to the table, and as the lazy Susan spun around, there was no denying it was the best Gentile feast I had ever had. <laughs> I've had other great ones. You know, there was the, the daylight donut feast. When I turned, I think it was 32, my wife could correct me, all I remember were those donuts stacked up in a huge mountain for the cake that I had that year. Wonderful, wonderful. Friends gathered, we rented a Tex-Mex restaurant, the whole second floor, everybody got their hearts content right there in the middle of Beijing, eating Tex-Mex and donuts. It was a feast. (laughs) And how could I rule out my wedding? A wonderful, wonderful day where friends and family gathered from all over the world to see Lauren and I exchange our vows, but then get together for that feast afterward. And as I think about all of those things, and you may have things that come to mind, your your own wedding feast, a graduation feast recently when you graduated from high school, or university, or college. And what do these things point toward? Well, ultimately, they point towards all good things that come and culminate with God. Feasts in our lifetimes here, as good as they are, are only a moment of time that points towards an eternity of time where we are going to be with God. And I think that was the spirit when one of these guys at a a lunch with Jesus caught on to that spirit and he He raised a glass and he said, blessed is everyone who is going to recline at table in the kingdom of God. You can almost see the glasses that everyone raises and they chink them around the table. And Jesus is there as a guest and he tells this parable that that in effect sweeps all the food off the table, dumps over every glass of wine and leaves the people standing there wide-eyed, staring. What did he just say? And so... This morning, as we consider one of the feasts that Jesus attended, and we look forward to the time when the the feast will culminate in that last day of a dinner with God, we need to ask the question, will I be there at that feast? Because today, like he was back in this time of Luke chapter 14, the master is compelling you to come. And he says, in effect, come to my feast, come to the master's feast. And that's what we're looking at today in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. And so as we look at these verses today, I'd like to focus on this theme, that all are invited to the master's feast, but you must be humbled to get in. All are invited. Make no mistake, God is generous, and the invitation rolls out today to every one of you here. But each one of us must be humbled in order to get in. 
We're going to look at how Jesus extends his invitation and what the master of the feast there at one of those occasions at some lunch with a Pharisee on a Sabbath day, what he did to communicate that invitation out. And so look with me back at Luke chapter 14 now, and let's go through these points, and we're going to see where this invitation goes out to. In each case, it goes to a congregation or a group of people that are proud. And Jesus wants to compel them to leave behind that pride and to be humbled and to not miss out on that feast. In the first place, look at verses 1 to 6. Here's the setting. It's a Sabbath. And so it says in verse 1, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So the, the setting is, you know, it's either a lunch or a dinner. Those are the main meals in first century Palestine. You know, you, you come together for a lunch or a dinner, and you're really um, well thought of in the community if you could open up your home and have people come in. It would be a rectangular table. The host would sit at one end, and around that table would be likely, if you're wealthy enough, these benches that could seat three people. The, the area farthest away from the host would be the least important people, and the most important spots would be at the right and the left side of the host as he sat there at dinner. And so Jesus is there. He's been invited. Other Pharisees are there, and wealthy people are there. When, lo and behold, a man was there before him who had dropsy. And this is unusual. Pharisees were scrupulous about avoiding contact with ritual impurities that would rule them out from their religious duties. A man with dropsy would certainly qualify to disqualify them. He is a guy who, in modern terms, has the condition called edema. Edema is a buildup of bodily fluids that are out of control in your body that cause unusual swelling. It could be something simple, but often it's the condition that is a result of internal, you know, chronic and deadly conditions with your liver or with your kidneys. And I could just imagine this bloated, swollen man in front of Jesus and the Pharisees at their table sitting and watching. What is he going to do? Because their intent was to trap him. This is the third time that they're trying this trick. And they've got this bait in front of Jesus. How can he resist this man with dropsy? Certainly he's going to do something. And we can trap him because in their view, to heal on the Sabbath day was against God's law. But I hope you can remember from our previous times in Luke and preaching through this series that it is not against God's law to show mercy on the Sabbath day. It is actually in support of God's law to deliver people from bondage and to bring them into the kingdom of God with hope and healing. And so here's what happens. Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, now how can he respond? They haven't said anything. Well, he knows they're watching him. And he asked them a question, and here's the first question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's talking to these religious proud, and he's inviting them as best he can to consider how to get into the feast. They're sitting at a feast, but if they don't get what Jesus is saying, not just today, but in the whole course of his ministry, and time is running out, he is quickly going to Jerusalem where he will die. He's compelling people to consider their position, whether they are with him or against him. And so he poses the question to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? If they answered, well, no, it's not they would have 
appeared to lack mercy. And this poor man with dropsy would have been considered by them to be somebody who would, who would just have to wait to be healed. Come back Sunday, and we'll focus on you then. Now, if they answered, yes, it's lawful, then they would be admitting that their policies, that their rules and their guidelines that were all around God's law were actually added onto God's law and were trapping people and provided no mercy, no life, no hope. They didn't want to admit that. So what do they do? They're silent. And so the text tells us that Jesus heals the man completely, immediately, and sends him on his way. The focus of the text is not even on the healing, but Jesus then turns around and he asks a second question. He says, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? So the question is, which of you, having a son or an ox, will not pull him out? If he falls in a well, wouldn't you get him out immediately? You know, the rabbis argued about what was permissible on the Sabbath day, but they finally made a decision. It's okay if your cow falls into a ditch. You can pull him out. And then later on they thought, maybe if your son falls into a well, it's okay to pull him out. It's okay. Animals and sons, I think they can pass for an act of mercy and not be judged by God on that day. And so Jesus, in effect, is posing this question to them and their answer would be, well, of course we would do that. But how could they leave this man who is drowning in his own bodily fluids in his condition and not healed and reconciled and made whole? Jesus leaves that question to them. And in effect, it essentially provides them this trap where they sought to trap him. But now they themselves are trapped, verse 6. They could not reply to these things. The, the effect is that they would not reply to these things. And as we come to the end of this, just a question for you is that what, what do you think when you look at this text? Because ultimately, you can be confused like I am sometimes about the Sabbath rules and maybe gloss over this, but really the point here is if you have a pride in your heart that is in the form of some religion or some objection to Jesus. Jesus comes every time anybody is in that category and flips the table on them, turns the table and actually poses to them a question that gets at the heart of their divided loyalties and forces them to wrestle with whether he is truly God or not. I think of a time my wife and I went to um, a lunch while, again, we were in China, and we had a, a, a couple from, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of exactly where they came from, the Middle East, as well as one of the European countries, and as we went to their, their house, the wife who had been coming to our church basically was burdened for her husband, who was very religious and knew much about the Bible, but didn't really care to come to church, and when we sat down with them at their table, enjoying their hospitality. I got into the discussion with the husband and found out that basically he read the Bible and he had read all the way through. And while he was reading, he found some objections. And so he went back to read the Bible again, this time to find the objections. And this time when he read through the Bible, he found out only the objections. 
And he went back again and he read the Bible. And this time it was to argue all of those points and to basically say why the Bible was not true and why it was not God's word until ultimately he just stopped reading the Bible altogether. And so as I talked with him, my heart was heavy for him. He was a man who found himself to be very religious, who understood so much about the Bible, but who ultimately rejected it because it didn't fit into his mode of thinking. And the, the, the trick here is with humility, we don't put ourselves in a position to judge the Bible. We actually submit our lives to the master and we listen to his voice. And whatever he says, even though it's difficult, we receive it and we move forward in obedience and submission to him. Well, I want to go to the next section and talk about another group that he talked to and invited because we don't know what happened to these Pharisees, but he continued addressing them. In verse 7, we see the wealthy proud. And this is what we're going to look at next. He invites the wealthy proud to his feast. It says that he told a parable to those who were invited. Look at that in verse 7. You can see that in verse 7, we're still at the same meal, and it's actually the same meal all the way up to verse 24, and Jesus says a lot of things. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In this point to the wealthy proud, Jesus speaks to those invited, and he says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. That's in that Last verse there, verse 11, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He tells a parable about a wedding feast and says that someone goes in and similar to this scene where he's at, but on a much larger scale, this guest goes in and scopes out the seats and gets there early and he goes closest to the wedding party. He loves that area because everybody's looking that way. And he sits down in the seat and he just observes how everyone is looking at him. And he's enjoying that moment. But then he looks behind him and he sees they're actually looking at the master who has come and puts his hand on that man's shoulder and says, friend, um, would you mind letting this person sit there? Why don't you come on over here to these seats? And so Jesus knows that the guests there at that lunch are thinking through that. And they may have seen that. They might have chuckled about that. But he's giving them advice. And it's more than just common dinner courtesies and table manners. Jesus is saying there's a principle that you need to understand. You who are wealthy and come in here to find the best seats, your life is centered around what you can get out of this life. Your perspective is all about you, what you have, who you know, and what you can get out of others. This is not going to satisfy you. It's not even good table manners. So Jesus says, if you want to know the principle 
that will do you good when you go into that room, look for the lowest seat you can find, and then allow the master of the feast to graduate you up. Because whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But whoever exalts himself, there's only one way to go, and that's down. Jesus is exposing a pride that doesn't come because people are wealthy, right? Having wealth does not automatically make you a proud, evil person. Wealth can be used as a blessing. Wealth can be used in a way to honor the Lord and to help others and to enjoy the good things that God gives. But wealth can also create in our hearts a hardness towards the reality of God's mastery, towards the eventual feast that God himself will compel us to come to. And it becomes less and less important. This is brought out in another point as he speaks to the host. In verse 12, he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, this doesn't mean you can never invite your family over for a barbecue. It doesn't mean you can't get together with some friends for a lunch on a nice sunny day. Right? Jesus, when he's speaking this way, it's a Jewish way of speaking that is not excluding what he's saying, but he's saying we're not trying now to focus on what is common and, and regularly practiced. I want to tell you something that is more beneficial. Yes, do these things, but don't miss out on this. And so he highlights what comes next. He says, But when you give a feast, verse 13, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, in effect, Jesus is saying to this man, I see that you've invited many people around you that when they leave can invite you to their house. And essentially, they can just go right over to your house and you can go to their house and you guys can just keep honoring each other and hanging out with each other, talking about how bad the world is, talking about how great God is and how great you are. But essentially, that gets you nowhere. He says, instead, invite those who can't repay you. Consider the outcasts. Consider those who are out there on the street, people that you know by your, your own standards are impure and shouldn't be involved, the, the, line, the blind, the lame, those who are crippled. You know, these people who are out there who can't work because of their condition and who can't get into the worship of God freely because you forbid them. Invite them into your home. <laughs> I can imagine the guests and the hosts, jaw drops, right? You know, people talk today about the concept of paying it forward. And in a sense, I think the, the Pharisee probably did things like gave tithes to the poor as long as they stayed where they were. He gave money to organizations that could help others to meet the needs of the crippled as long as they stayed out on the streets. But to bring them into his home? No, no, no. I don't associate with people like that. That's riffraff. I don't hang out with people like that. They're clingy needy. And so, as we finish up this, I think it's important to remember Jesus is saying that there's something that's greater than just having proper table manners. There's something more important than just making sure that you get at the right seat at the table. And that's making sure that your heart is right towards God's values and his kingdom. And that 
You get to the feast. But no matter what happens, you're there when the eternal rewards are given out someday. So one man, as he reclines at the table with Jesus, heard these things, and I want to go to the next point. We'll get to some application here in a minute. But Jesus also wants to invite the presumptuous proud. The presumptuous proud. What's presumption mean? It means you have an idea in your head that something is going to happen a certain way, and you're waiting for it to happen. That in your mind, there's no way it won't happen. So I think as the, the guest and the host recline there at table and look at Jesus and are flabbergasted that he has just, as I said, essentially swept the food off the table and dumped out the wine, and now they're left wondering, what do we say? And there's always one guy that knows what to do at a moment like that. And he grabs his goblet and he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And you can kind of feel the tension break around the table and everyone says, amen, amen. And so, amen. But Jesus then doesn't answer this guy. It's not a, a wrong statement. Everyone who does get there will be blessed. This is similar to that lady a, a few chapters ago who called out to Jesus, blessed are those breasts at which you nursed. And, and Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear my word and obey it. And in this time, he's giving a parable answer that continues to challenge the root of pride of the people around the table. And so Jesus then sa says that there was a master who, who threw a great feast. And months earlier, he'd sent out invitations to everybody. All right? and, and the feast, again, it says in verse uh, 16, a man gave a great Great. The emphasis there on, is on how big it is. It's not a common lunch table gathering. This is huge. It would be a statewide in a mansion. And he invited many. He wants lots of people to be there. And so he sends out his servant to the people around the town. And he says, hey, the dinner is ready. Everything's laid out. I've told you it's going to happen. So come on. It's time. Right, this is how invitations worked. There would be one that would go out months earlier, and the people would receive that, and they wouldn't know the time specifically. Right? It would take time for the cattle to mature and for somebody to butcher them and for them to be roasted and fried or whatever they would do and to get all the meat and bread and vegetables on the table. You can just go to Costco and throw a feast on the table. It took time to prepare. They didn't have iPhones to keep track of their events. So the first invite would compel people to come to this future gathering. And then the second invite would go out when the servant would go and say, it's time. Come on. But one by one, people give their excuses. And this is what we find out, that all alike made excuses about why they would not come. Now, as the people hearing this there at that lunch with Jesus try to process that, to them, this is absurd. If people were invited to a great feast like that, we live for these feasts. That's crazy, Jesus. But he gives them some samples of what happened. One guy says, you know, I bought some land, and I've got to go inspect it. Please have me excused. And another man says, I bought a, a bunch of oxen, and I need to go test them. I'm sorry, can't come. Another guy says, I just married a wife, and I can't come. You know, the first two... 
really all three, have in, have in common the characteristic of being really, really lame excuses. Right? In the first case, those guys, who would, who would buy land without expecting it first? And it would still be there after this dinner. I'd be going to the dinner. And the guy who bought oxen, why would he not test them first to see if they could actually do the work that he required before he purchased them? We might say, well, the guy who, was getting, who had just gotten married, okay, give him some time with his bride. But really, God's law made no provision to deny a, for, a prior obligation just because you have new obligations. He could have taken his bride with him. Obviously, the man wanted lots of people to come. And the Pharisees would have laughed at this because every day they prayed, thank God that I am not a woman. Thank you, God, that I have not been made a woman. And so if Jesus is saying, a guy is saying, well, I have a wife and now I can't come, they would have said, who would say something like that? I'm not trying to put down wives or women here today, all right? I'm just saying, in their minds, what Jesus was saying and the excuses he was providing as examples for why people said they wouldn't come were ridiculous. And so then, the main point is this, the master is mad. He's mad. It says, the servant came, verse 21, and reported these things to the master, and the master of the house became angry. The point of this parable is the master's response next. What happens next? Well, we have an inclusion that happens. Look at what the master says. Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The very same group that was in that group that Jesus mentioned to the host of the dinner. He said, go out and get them and bring them in. And so the servant says, master, that's already been done. Could you imagine these people coming into an opulent feast, not even able to see it, hobbling up, limping, wounds seeping, brokenness, seated all around that table. And then it gets worse because the master says to the servant, well, if there's still room, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. This is the, the absurdity of this whole situation. As the dinner guests hear this parable that Jesus is sharing, and all they were doing was just commenting that when we get to heaven, that's going to be a good time. That's a time of blessing, and we're looking forward to that. And Jesus' response is, are you sure you're going to be there? Are you positive that that's your spot, that you'll be at the table? Because the last verse says, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. It's a sobering summary. And actually, in verse 24, you know, it's the, in the quote of what the master is saying to the servant. But this is what Jesus is concluding. And when you see, for I tell you, that actually is in plural. And Jesus is then looking out into the eyes of those Pharisees and the wealthy guests gathered around that table. And he says, for I tell you, none of those who were invited will sit at my table. How sobering that is. And essentially all this means is that when God sent out the first invitation to the Jewish people, 
It was through the Old Testament prophets. It was through those who came and bore witness that Jesus, the Christ, was coming. And they heard about God's movement and his activity all throughout history. And they said, we want to be there when that feast day comes. The invitation went out. And as a nation, they said, yes, we'll be there. But when Jesus comes to deliver the next invitation and says, the kingdom has arrived. The feast is laid out. Nothing for you to bring. Nothing for you to do. You just simply have to come. And one by one, across the nation, the Jewish people responded, no, no thanks. You know, I've got a bit of land that I need to take care of here. You know, I've, I've got some cattle I need to take care of. I've got some investments that I'm trying to monitor. I really don't have time to go. Please have me excused. And Jesus says, there will come a time when those who have been invited will no longer be invited by the excuses that they make, by the presumptions that they take, they will find that they don't have a seat at the table. So friends, as we close today, what are we to take out of this? I have two applications for us, and the first is this. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Verse 7 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That is a principle that's so important. It's repeated throughout the Old and the New Testament. And we find that God says that he humbles the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Our God is faithful to break down the pride that's in each of our hearts and to give us grace so that we can receive more grace. This is the goodness of our God. But if we are to be humble, how do we get there? You know, when I think about what Jesus was saying here, we could take it like as a reverse psychology. Well, if you want a good seat, then go into the dinner and actually sit in the lesser seats. And if you want that good seat, don't worry, you'll be moved up, right? Reverse psychology is not in Jesus' mind here. What he's talking about is a tendency in our own hearts to want positions of prominence. I think about it like, for example, when we're singing in here. And I'm so thankful Pastor Doug mentioned that he's praying for all of us while we sing. I need that. Sometimes I'm thinking too much about what other people think of me while I sing. Sometimes I'm thinking other people think, need to think more about me while I sing. <laughs> Do you ever deal with that? But, you know, I found a, a freedom this morning to look around up here on the platform, to watch Pastor Doug, to, to see many of you, and to be thinking, right, God, thank you. Thank you for how you've made these people. Thank you for being able to be here, that I'm here singing your praises. Thank you for who you are. Amen. Right, so... C.S. Lewis once talked about this concept of being a gospel, humble person. Tim Keller, in an excellent little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, talked about this principle. I want to just read a short portion of it. You know, here's what he said. If we were to meet a truly humble person, C.S. Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking that they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody, because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. Think about that for a little while. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself, 
or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. Not thinking more, not thinking less, but thinking of myself less. <laughs> it's freeing, for sure, when we are stop, we stop the obsessing about our looks, about our status in the class. We stop obsessing about our performance at work, the accomplishments of our kids, the amount of money in the bank, or what people might think about us. When we are free from those things, to actually not be obsessed with those, but instead to be thinking about what's good for those people around us, then something has occurred in us that goes beyond mere willpower to be humble. The only thing that can make proud people, whether they be religious proud, or wealthy proud, or presumptuous proud, the only thing that can make proud people humble is the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And the more we focus about who he is, the more we see Jesus as the one who gave up his position and his status as the master to come and to wash his people's feet. When we see him as the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we see him not as the one who came to call down judgment, but that the one who came to save, it begins to erode our pride and to strike us at the moment of our need. When we recognize we have better company and more like-mindedness and more common experience with the poor, with the blind, with the crippled, the lame, than we do with the wealthy, then we're on solid ground and we have a seat at the table. But friends, could you say, like Isaac Watts wrote in an old song we don't sing anymore, probably because the name of it is called How Sweet and Awful is the Place, meaning full of awe, but it's just weird. But he subtitled it The Great Feast. Here's what he said. Can you say this about yourself? While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, imagining yourself there at the feast of God, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Here's what we face. It's a humility that says, I don't deserve to be here. Oh, but I'm here. Lord Jesus, your grace is abundant and the feast is spread by the merits of your work. I have to come I bring nothing, I contribute nothing, but you've paid it all. Amen. And friends, I want you to know a second part of this invitation. For those of us who are here, who, who love those who are yet not a part of that feast, then for you, share the invitation. Share the invitation. You know, we're told that the servant was said to go out and compel those to come in. Compel. It's a strong word. Others have used and misused this word to imply maybe an abuse. Go out and you twist someone's arm and make them walk an aisle. It's not what this means. But you think about the highways and the hedges were the areas where robbers hung out, where the Gentiles were. And as he went out, he would have to help them understand how Jesus, the master, had anything at all to do with them. 
and to show them how he had everything to do with them. As I close, I want to share one quick story. It may take me a couple minutes to read about a man named Greg Lucas. Recently, he wrote a blog post. He's a dad of four. He has a special needs son. Um, He's written a lot about that, written a book called Wrestling with an Angel. But he wrote last Friday about his dad. His dad recently died. When he was 81, Parkinson's disease ravaged his dad's body to the point where he couldn't remain at his home anymore. And Greg says that his dad's wife of 48 years called him and said, I need you to come because I just can't care for him anymore. So in, in tears, she had just explained how his physical state was too far gone and deteriorated. So he went over, he said he found his dad, cleaned up all the urine and feces, got him cleaned up and ready to go to the hospital. As he sat at the hospital with his dad, he remembered the past, how his dad left his mother, his wife, Greg's mother, before Greg had even been born, that all Greg's life, his dad lived a half a block away, that he worked 12 to 16 hours um, a day, but didn't provide any financial help, that he never checked in on his son and his two sisters, and that really the only thing that he remembered his dad ever sharing with him was this thing that he kept saying over and over again, kind of as a joke, Greg kind of took it this way, But all his life long, the dad said, son, you'll never make it. These injuries rang through Greg's mind as he sat by his dad's bedside. And I want to read a couple of things about what Greg says. Burdened about his dad, seeing how scared he was, he said to him, it's time, dad. Time for what? His dad whispered with frail, fading voice. It's time for us to talk. I'm not going anywhere, his dad responded with a nervous half-smile. So Greg knew what he was afraid of. He knew that all of his past sins, the demons of neglect, the demons of cruelty, that he could have been, should have been a better father, husband, and friend. He should have spent more time with family and less time at work. He should have been a better man. He should have said more. He could have said less. But all the should-haves, could-haves meant nothing now. He knew that he has wasted most, if not all, of his life. And so Greg took a deep breath and began to speak to his dad. And he said, Dad, are you ready to meet the Lord? His dad looked at him with certain fear in his eyes, as if he had just pushed him toward the judgment he had expected to come. Greg said, I talked to my dad many times through the years about redemption, salvation, and the gospel of Jesus. He would always shut down and change the subject or make some kind of excuse to leave the room. But now all his excuses were gone. He had nowhere else to go. I don't know, he whispered as he looked away. And then something rather miraculous happened. My dad began to weep, softly at first, then uncontrollably, like a switch had been flipped. He wept openly for what seemed like a very long time, and for a long time I just sat there and watched him cry, partially because I didn't know what to say next, but mostly because it was something I had never seen before. After a while, I continued to speak the only words between my dad and me that really seemed to matter. Dad, Jesus lived a perfect life, a life you could never live if you had a thousand lifetimes to live. And the Bible says he will give that life to you. Place it on your account so that when you stand before God, he will see Jesus' perfect life instead of your sinful life. Do you want that? I paused, hoping I got it simple enough for him to understand. Yes, I want that. I want to believe that. And through this conversation, Greg shares that his dad got saved. 
that he baptized him in that two-day span in the veterans hospital in West Virginia before he went on to the nursing home. And that when he got to the nursing home, all of the, the workers there commented about how gentle he was, how gracious, how he had an encouraging word for everybody. And when they would tell Greg this, he would think internally, my dad? But he, but he knew, yes, by the, the grace of Jesus, even those who are out there on the highways and the hedges, even those who have failed, can receive his grace, bring nothing to the feast, and sit there and enjoy what the master has spread. Will you come to the master's feast? Let's pray. Father, how gracious you are. Jesus, how good you are. You could have dusted off your feet and said no more of these religious hypocrites. But you went to a lunch with them. You loved them so much that you shared with them the invitation to your feast and gave them yet another opportunity to come. Today, there may be some here who, who must come. And I pray by your spirit that you would compel them to come, that today would be the day of salvation, that they wouldn't hold back waiting to get better, that in their conscience, they wouldn't wait until it stops yelling at them. They would see as their only requirement to see their need of Jesus and come. I pray, God, that you would do these things for your glory, for the good of your people. Amen. Let's stand and sing on this Father's Day to our God who sacrificed his son on the wondrous cross.
So dads here, two lessons I hope you learned this morning. One, don't leave your son in a well on the Sabbath day. (laughs) But second and most importantly, the only hope that we dads have is the overwhelming grace and love of Jesus Christ that makes us into the men that we need to be both now and for the next generation. So let me close us with a word of benediction and prayer. Father, thank you so much that you are gracious to us. Bless the fathers here today. I pray that many testimonies of your sustaining grace and of the overwhelming love of Jesus Christ would be the stories that are told around tables today and in the future so that as each dad here would face his final moments, he can say someday, I believe in Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He is my God. And I follow him. Lord Jesus, sustain these dads, these families, these individuals here today as only you can and use your body as they go to bless others and to have humble hearts that see the needs of others as more important than themselves. By your grace, make it so. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We're dismissed.